Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Come up on today's program. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. We'll have reaction to President Joe Biden's call for police reform during his State of the Union address last night. I'll speak with the president of the Legal Defense Fund. Also, the Georgia State Senate has passed a bill that permanently blocks schools, colleges, state and local governments from requiring proof of COVID vaccinations for enrollment or services. Now, that temporary ban was put in law last year, but expires June 30th. We'll have reaction to the measure. I'll speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. And since it's now three years of COVID-19 entering and impacting our world, today a congressional hearing takes place to examine and discuss the past, the present, and future of the federal response to COVID-19. Thanks to 670 million vaccines administered in the United States and the work of those at CDC and thousands of federal, state, local, and private sector partners, and because of the more than 100 million infections Americas have endured and survived, we have built a wall of immunity and expanded the tools available to decrease the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19. And that is CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. And again, we'll have more regarding the nation's response to COVID-19 when I speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Speaking of COVID-19, as mentioned, yes, that Georgia State Senate has passed a bill that, yes, would require, that would block schools, colleges, state and local governments from asking, requiring proof of COVID vaccinations for enrollment of services. And this ban was put into law last year, but it expires June 30th. And yesterday's debate included some testy exchanges between the bill's author, Republican State Senator Greg Dolezal, and Democratic State Senator Nan Orrock. Are you dismissive of uh, those long-established powers of public health uh, officials to take steps necessary to contain infection? Senator, I don't even think that's a serious question. I beg your pardon? I don't think it's a serious question to imply that because I don't believe that government should discriminate against citizens based on COVID-19 vaccination status that I somehow dismiss broad public health measures. The vote fell along party lines with Republicans for it and Democrats against it. Senate Bill 1 now heads to the Georgia House. The Georgia Supreme Court is siding with opponents of a commercial spaceport that had been proposed for the coast. Emily Jones reports it's the latest blow to a project that looks increasingly unlikely to happen. Camden County officials have pushed the spaceport as a way to bring jobs and investment to South Georgia. Despite concerns about safety and the environment, Camden has spent more than $10 million in the last decade on the effort. But voters in Camden County forced a referendum on the spaceport, then voted overwhelmingly against the project. More than 70 percent voted to overrule the county commission's deal to buy land for the spaceport. The county argued that election wasn't valid, but the state Supreme Court disagreed and upheld the results of the election in a unanimous decision. Meanwhile, the owner of the property in question, Union Carbide, no longer wants to sell it to the county. Camden County has sued the company over the land deal. Emily Jones, WABE News. Another bill making its way is being pushed by some Georgia state senators. They want to eliminate the mandatory requirement of a college degree for a state job, as we hear from Alex Helmick. A bill moving through the Capitol would require a review of all state jobs to determine if a degree should be required. It comes as Georgia, as well as many other states, are struggling to fill vacancies. The bill also calls for the State Department of Administrative Services to try to reduce training, experience, and educational requirements for jobs. 
it now heads for a vote in the full Senate. Meantime, some state officials are pushing for higher salaries to attract workers to the many state vacancies that exist here. The governor's budget proposal includes $2,000 pay raises for all state employees. Alex Helmick, WAB News. And coming up next, response to President Joe Biden's State of the Union address. I'll be joined by Janae Nelson, president of the Legal Defense Fund. You're listening to Closer Look. Back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. President Joe Biden used more than an hour to talk about the good, the bad, and the challenging during his State of the Union address last night. There was even time to respond to some yelling from Republicans like Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. However, the president did have time also to include a call for reforms within law enforcement, most notably police departments. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. More resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime. More community intervention programs. More investments in housing, education, and job training. All this can help prevent violence in the first place. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. Let's have reaction now and welcome in Janae Nelson, President, Director Counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to yesterday's State of the Union address, I want to go back to about a little bit over a week ago. Your organization was among eight black-led civil rights groups calling on the president and vice president to meet prior to the State of the Union. Tell us more about this, and did you were you able to get some things worked in that you wanted to be addressed? Well, like everyone in, across the country, we were deeply alarmed and uh, frankly disgusted by the vicious killing of Tyree Nichols that so many of us uh, had to bear witness to. And we called on the president and the vice president to meet with the eight Black-led civil rights legacy organizations mm -hmm. to discuss how we move forward with a new vision of public safety in light of this recurring and ongoing crisis. And we did not have an opportunity to meet with the president before the State of the Union address. We will continue to press for that engagement and for that audience. Mm -hmm. But we have shared with the president via a letter what our demands are and what we think the appropriate considerations are at this moment where we've talked about reform exhaustively, where we've talked about uh, the need for change exhaustively, where we've done this for years on end mm -hmm. and are still facing a circumstance where black and brown people are disproportionately killed by the police. So we are at the point where we are demanding real and robust action. And we think that some of what the president said last night indicates that he also appreciates the urgency of this moment. And we are uh, hopeful that this will be a time for real change. When you talk about real, robust reforms, changes, and you're right, we've been down this road before and talking about how do we come up with actionable outcomes that work, but then you'll get, you may get pushed back. And it could be along party lines. You get pushed back and says, well, you have to understand that, you know, law enforcement, they're, they're dealing with so much here. What should real and, and robust, uh, robust reforms look like then, President Nelson? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, you said it exactly. And, and we hear that refrain all the time that the police are dealing with so much. And I couldn't agree more. The police are dealing with too much. In fact, they should be dealing with much less. And that is the appropriate response 
um, to the over-policing crisis that we see, particularly in our communities. We have police officers, armed police officers, responding to people who are in crisis, whether it be a mental health crisis uh, or, or some other um, uh, moment of vulnerability. We have armed law enforcement officers stopping people for broken taillights, for expired registration, for non-threatening matters. Mm -hmm. And we also have law enforcement officers dealing with the crisis of unhoused persons in this country, which, you know, is a, a confluence of economic issues and some social and mental health issues. And police officers themselves have said that they are ill-equipped, they are not trained professionally to engage in this sort of social intervention. So this is a moment for us to rethink what it actually means to make our communities safe and allow them to thrive. And that means matching the appropriate responders with the appropriate uh, problems. And law enforcement, sadly, has become the, the, the solution for so many problems. And it really doesn't solve very much. It's not a lasting investment. It doesn't transform how communities operate. So instead, I was heartened to hear President Biden say that we need to bring more economic and educational opportunities to communities, that that's the best way to prevent violence, that's the best way to support these communities. And increased law enforcement is absolutely not the answer. In fact, we ought to be reducing the scope of policing and replacing it with the appropriate trained professionals. President Nelson, based on what you just said, how do you get that message or how do you suggest getting that message across to those who have been in opposition? Because immediately some of those folks think you're talking about defunding the police. And then there again lies the problem. Yeah, what we're talking about is a, a redirection of funds in the appropriate uh, way that will lead to a lasting solution. So we invest a lot in law enforcement, in armed police officers. Instead, we should be investing more in training professionals who can respond to the crises, the, the, the basic quality of life issues that are the most, um, you know, uh, vexing for the everyday person and leave the, the this crime fighting, the solving of crimes, uh, the detective work, the investigation, uh, the real work that people rely on on law enforcement for. It should be a much narrower scope of responsibilities and it requires an entirely different framework because we know that even when law enforcement is engaged, which it does at, at, a, at a very um, uh, you know, low percentage mm -hmm. uh, in actual crime solving. Um, it's still doing it within a system that originated with uh, a very racist and white supremacist foundation. And so the current system of law enforcement and public safety that we have is, is fraught. And it really needs an entirely different framework and it needs to be reinvented. Um, because it has not been serving us well. And I think anyone who is honest and objective about it can can see that there are ways that we could be investing our taxpayer dollars in ways that will make us safer and that are just much more sensible. But again, when, when you say all that and, and the pushback is, oh, you want to defund the police. How do you change that? How do you get that narrative across? Because it is it comes down to people's mindsets. And then also you may have some who are pushing a narrative. Well, then the criminals will take over and then, you know, look at crime. And we're here in the Atlanta area. We have a neighborhood that wants to secede from the rest of the city because they say crime is the major reason. Yeah, and, and what I would say is we need to look at the data. We can't be driven by jargon and slogans. That That's not a solution. We know that a significant number of, of low-level calls are rooted to law enforcement officials where alternative responders would be much better served to help those people who are in need or to address routine issues of law enforcement. And we all have had these experiences. We've all been pulled over by an officer. We've all uh, had some encounter with law enforcement. And we should stop and ask ourselves whether it was actually necessary to have mm -hmm. someone who is armed with a weapon that could potentially end our lives be involved in that interaction. 
And I think the answer is resoundingly no. People need social services. People need investments in economic and educational opportunities. And it's how we decide we are going to invest our money in the future of our communities that matters the most. So it's not about a particular saying or slogan. It mm-hmm. is about a choice and what we want to invest in. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Janae Nelson, President and Director Counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. When you think about civil rights successes, let's say within the last, well, since 2015, 2016, when there was another president in the White House, and you look at where we are now, the Biden administration, are you optimistic in seeing some civil rights successes, or are we back to those familiar challenges that we've had, always had? I think that there is incredible momentum in this moment. There's also an enormous amount of threat, and we are faced with a choice on what direction we want this country to go in. Uh, There has been some advancement on civil rights matters. We've seen uh, greater protections uh, in executive action, Uh, When it comes to police violence, we've seen uh, a greater appreciation and protection of LGBTQIA persons uh, under the Equality Act. We've seen some some significant progress, but certainly not enough. And one of the areas where we are uh, in need of probably the most transformation is in the area of securing our voting rights and political power, Mm -hmm. uh, which ultimately secures our democracy. We are still waiting for comprehensive federal voting rights legislation to make sure that the growing majority of people of color and young people in this country have a voice in the future of our democracy, that they have the right to cast a vote that will be counted, and they can then elect those representatives who will advance civil rights and who will meet the current social justice and racial justice needs of our evolving society. So we believe at the Legal Defense Fund that the right to vote is fundamental. And as the Supreme Court has said, it's preservative of all rights. So we need to begin with securing the right to vote and making sure that our democracy has a chance to flourish and to operate in service of uh, the diverse and pluralistic electorate that we have. You know, you are among some, first of all, your organization, for folks that don't know, is historic in itself. You all been around since 1940, and now you hold the same ranks as some very, I mean, some very prominent folks, historians that we all know, Thurgood Marshall, and of course, Sherilyn Eiffel, who, who was your predecessor. With your leadership, with your appointment now as a leader, what are some of the goals that you really hope that now under your leadership, you all will, will get to see some of those progress and achievements that you just talked about? those areas that still need a lot of work. Oh, there's there's so many areas. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I, I'm actually a former uh, voting rights litigator and, and democracy scholar and uh, still believe that that is the linchpin to our progress um, on every front. And so that is something that we will continue to advance to make sure that we are building Black political power. But I also recognize as I said, that our society is evolving demographically, ethnically, racially. There are so many uh, intersections that that we need to begin to account for as a community and as a society. And so coalition building will be essential to the future thriving of our democracy. And that's a project that I personally am quite uh, interested and invested in and that I believe the Legal Defense Fund is a well-positioned to spearhead, to think about ways in which Uh, various communities can come together to upend uh, what has been a white supremacist hierarchy that has governed this country since its existence. And we now have an opportunity to rethink that. We have the opportunity to engage in a refounding of this democracy that includes us all. You know, you talked about building coalition. Uh, When you're a leader in the position that you have, that can be challenging. Yes, it can be. And you know what? It should be, right? Uh, Nothing about democracy is easy. Uh, Nothing about ending racism uh, is is going to be a a, a easy path. We know this. And, And frankly, there is no such thing as really ending it once and for all when it's built into the DNA of this country. It is an ever present threat. It's one that we must constantly be vigilant 
uh, to, to try to contain and try to reduce and try to minimize uh, and eliminate where possible. But that is the, the work of being an American in this country or being a resident of this country. We inherit the history, we inherit the baggage, we inherit um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we benefit from the incredible mosaic that this country holds and the promise that that diversity could potentially yield if we were to celebrate and tap into it. So I am, I'm optimistic. I'm also quite realistic about the challenges ahead, but I'm optimistic that in the same way that our ancestors were able to overcome unthinkable obstacles, that we have an opportunity to do the same uh, in, in, in our movement and advancement forward. That's a good way to end this conversation. Janae Nelson is president and director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. Thank you so much. Take the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. To mask or not to mask? To vaccinate or not to vaccinate? That's still an ongoing debate for some folks, and people are still fussing about it at dinner tables. George Governor Brian Kemp has always made it clear his opinion regarding the mask mandates. Now, here's what he told Fox News back in 2021. That's a decision that I believe individuals need to make, uh, private employers need to make. I don't always agree with those decisions, but I've always been consistent. We don't need the government mandating these things on a person or a, a private business. I've been a small business owner for 35 years. I don't want the government telling me, you know, whether I need to vaccinate my employees or not. I just don't think we need to be in that business. I think if you see that happen, you're going to see people revolt, you know, like they've been doing on airplanes on whether to wear a mask now uh, or not. And people are fighting over that. I can't imagine what it would be like if we start doing something like that with vaccines. And earlier we told you about a bill, yes, already passed in the Senate that permanently blocks schools, colleges, state and local governments from requiring proof of COVID vaccinations for enrollment or services. That is now headed to the House, and thus the voting has been divided along party lines with Republicans for it and Democrats against it. And today, the House Oversight Committee heard testimonies from leaders within the National Institutes of Health and the Atlanta-based Centers for the CDC, rather, regarding how the nation responded to COVID-19. Now, earlier I spoke with Dr. Carlos Del Rio about the Senate bill and how Congress is now assessing how the U.S. responded to COVID-19. Dr. Del Rio, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. Happy to be with you, Rose. Let's begin here, and that is with your reaction to this Georgia State Senate bill that would permanently block schools, colleges, state and local governments from requiring proof of COVID vaccinations for enrollment or services. Well, you know, Rose, I think let's start by saying that the COVID vaccines have been incredibly effective in helping decrease morbidity and mortality from this disease. Over time, and as the vaccine, as the variants have emerged and different variants have emerged, the vaccines continue to be very effective in preventing morbidity and more, especially mortality, hospitalization. But they're not as good in preventing transmission. They're not. They're not. Their efficacy in transmission is not zero, but it's, it's pretty low. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we are at a point that, in, in the pandemic, that I think between people who have been naturally infected and people who've been vaccinated a lot of the population has developed enough of an immunity barrier that I think at this point in time, we need to focus on really making sure that people are up to date in their vaccination, especially those over the age of 60. I'm concerned that many people over the age of 60 have not received their boosters and therefore have not been, uh, are not are still at risk of, of severe outcomes, of, of you know bad outcomes from an infection. Now, does it make sense to say, you know, in order to enroll in college, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old needs to be uh, vaccinated and up-to-date immunizations. Their risk of dying is, is low. The risk of getting COVID is probably the same whether they're vaccinated or not, because many of them have already received some vaccine or they have already received, uh, have been had infected through natural immunity. So I would say that we need to rethink, we need to revise our science and we need to say at this point in time, 
it probably doesn't make any sense to continue having mandates for vaccinations in schools and colleges. Uh, having said that, uh, I, I don't like the idea of a law that permanently bans this because this can easily slip into, you know, preventing the mandates for other vaccines that are critically important, such as measles, such as, mm -hmm. you know, diphtheria and many other diseases for which, quite frankly, Rose, uh, vaccines have made a huge difference in our kids. That leads me to this because as an infectious disease expert, I want to talk to you about what the data reveals. Do we know then that there is enough of the population vaccinated, which you just kind of alluded to, but therefore I'm, I'm talking about in terms of down the road, what this might mean if there's another COVID-19 variant, which it could be, uh, or some other virus that comes online, how something like this then, or, go ahead. Or, or if there's a, uh a better vaccine, right? We are developing better vaccines. And in the future, there may be a vaccine that actually prevents transmission. And again, that's why I think a law that permanently bans this, it's a really bad idea because it's not consistent with the science. It's not consistent with the changing that we're seeing. And this virus has thrown, you know, curveballs to us every single time. And I think having a law that permanently bans this is really a bad idea. I want to switch for a moment, too, and talk about masking, because even at the time of our conversation where there is this congressional hearing, uh, there is this narrative now that the masking requirements that we all were under during the height, the height of the pandemic may not have been beneficial at all. Uh, take a listen to this. Another one of the many issues that we hope to address today is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and their rationale for masking and the closure of reopening schools. We now have the findings of a comprehensive review of multiple randomized controlled trials that show, quote, no clear reduction in respiratory viral infection with the use of medical surgical masks, end quote, or in fact, with the use of N95 masks. The conclusion of these studies makes me wonder what evidence there was to justify forcing masking of our children. Now, that is Republican Morgan Griffith of Virginia, who is on the Oversight Committee, one of these committees that's holding the congressional hearings today. Your reaction to what he had to say? Well, you know, Rose, masking has been one of the most <clears throat> controversial and, and, and politicized aspects of this pandemic. I would say that we try to see things black and white. Mask works, masks don't work. And I think there's a point right sort of in the middle, right? It's, there's some efficacy of masking. How much it is? 20%, 30%, 40%. It depends on many things. It depends on what kind of mask you're using, whether you're using the mask correctly or not, or what kind of situation you have. The one thing that is very clear is that early in the pandemic, the virus that we were facing, the, the original Wuhan strain, the, vi the mask was probably more effective than what it is today when we see the Omicron variant, right? I mean, this variant's a lot more transmissible it's, it's a lot more infectious, and therefore the efficacy of masks being very different. That's why you have people that say, you know, I've been doing the same thing. I've been masking the same way for three years, and all of a sudden I got infected. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because, you know, the virus has changed. And that's, I think, one of the things we need to take into consideration. When we talk about, you know, policies, when we talk about recommendations we did in public health, we did it based on the, on, on the best knowledge we had at that time. And I think that's one, I think one mistake we did in the communication is saying, we should have said, this is what we know today. This is what we don't know. And as we know more, we're going to be changing our policies. We're going to be changing our recommendations. And that to me actually has been one of the unfortunate, uh, you know, missteps in communication throughout this pandemic. And also, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, you as someone who's been in this space for so many years, and you also understand the politics involved, although many people say when it comes to saving lives, it should not be political, obviously. But there were two different administrations in Washington dealing with this pandemic. Lots of questions today to the NIH and CDC, and although you don't represent them, but you are very familiar with their role as it relates to public health. Here's someone you know, obviously, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, testifying today. Today, our nation is in a much different position than we were at the start of the pandemic. Just three years ago, we were recording the first COVID-19 cases that sadly resulted in as many as 15 to 20,000 deaths per week. We were limited in treatments and vaccines were not yet available. Two years ago, we began the largest vaccination program in the history of this country. And along the way, we've learned how to adapt to and manage an evolving virus. 
Thanks to 670 million vaccines administered in the United States and the work of those at CDC and thousands of federal, state, local, and private sector partners, and because of the more than 100 million infections Americas have endured and survived, we have built a wall of immunity and expanded the tools available to decrease the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19. So Dr. Del Rio, agencies like the CDC and NIH, although they admit both have Agencies have admitted there could have been things done differently. But when you have congressional hearings like this that are not just asking questions about how we can be better, but also, in a sense, putting blame on these agencies when there are two different administrations, as I just mentioned, how concerning is that for you as a public policy health expert as well, too, that this is where we are right now? Well, first of all, Rose, let me say that that we, uh, CDC and, uh, and NIH, has some of the leading experts in public health and infectious disease, uh, not only in our nation but on the wor- in the world. Right? They are some of the top individuals who work at those agencies, and they work there because they like what they do and because they are passionate about serving the nation. It's not because of their excellent pay. It's not because of many other things. Throughout the pandemic. Of friends and colleagues in CDC worked long hours, uh, tirelessly trying to answer questions. Mm-hmm. They were essentially drinking from the water hydrant. And I would first of all say my, my thanks and my respects to all of those federal employees, uh, local public health employees, you know, people working at state health department, at local health departments uh, throughout our nation that really work extremely, extremely hard throughout this pandemic. We need to recognize people in public health. I am totally in favor of having congressional hearings to understand what happened and to understand how could we better, had, could we have been better? Absolutely, there's many things that could be improved. And quite frankly, our nation needs to be learned from this pandemic to be better prepared for the next one. Mm-hmm. I would tell you at this point in time, I'm not sure we're prepared for the next one and we're not in a better place. What I don't want is this pandemic to be about placing blame. What I don't want these hearings to be, I don't want them to be politicized about trying to crucify a, a you know a a public service employee that that did so much and put so much effort in in the response to this pandemic and whether that person is Dr. Fauci whether that person is Dr. Walensky I mean, whoever you want in that mm-hmm. position those people are working uh, for the good of our nation and and they need to be uh, thanked they need to be recognized for their work and yes we need to recognize that we all made mistakes and that's part of responding to a crisis responding to a crisis is never perfect, but always at every single point of this response, people have the best interest of Americans in mind. As we begin to wrap up, you just told me just moments ago that, quite frankly, you believe we may not be ready for another type of pandemic if one does occur during our lifetime. What is concerning to you then about that we're not ready? Well, again, I'm concerning because we uh, are you know, politically so divided and we need to do certain things. We need to invest in public health. We need to be careful about not passing laws, like preventing, you know, mandates from ever occurring because we may need mandates at some point in time. We may need responses in a different way. We need to give public health the authority to make the decisions they need to make independent of, of politics, independent of laws that exist there. Because at the end of the day, the response has to be the most appropriate to save as many lives as possible. But we also, you know, our hospitals are not ready. Uh, many hospitals have closed. Hospitals are at full capacity right now. Healthcare systems are struggling financially. We are not in a good place right now as a nation in our public health and in our health response overall. And, and I do worry that we need to start thinking about how to make things better as opposed to going back and saying, what did we do wrong? And then finally, more than a million lives here in the United States were lost to this virus. There are still deaths that occur. At the end of the day, when folks want to look at the data and look at all the, the assessments, lives were lost. What is your message to other policymakers and state law, whether it's state or federal lawmakers, to consider when talking about these new laws or provisions or other mandates as it relates to something like this, a virus, influenza, whatever? You know, Rose, uh, I just... I have a lot of, I'm incredibly sad to know about the number of people that have died, the number of kids that have been orphaned by one or both parents as a result of the pandemic, the number of people that have, uh, we lost prematurely because of this virus. 
in the early in the pandemic, when you and I discussed, we talked, I think if I had said over a million Americans are going to die, you would have said, you know, Dr. Del Rio is crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. And the reality is this is much more than any of us ever predicted. Having said that, we know how to stop deaths today. We know what we need to do. Uh, last week, uh, CDC put an MMWR saying that in the last two years, 80% of deaths have been in people over 60. The great majority of them are people that have not been boosted. So we need to focus on keeping up to date on boosting those individuals over the age of 60 so they're preventing from dying. We also have tools like Paxlovid, like myelinopervir, mm -hmm. that we need to be deploying more effectively. Those tools have not been deployed effectively, and we're seeing still people die because they have not been given the treatments available out there. So I think there's a lot more we can do. I still think the number of deaths we're having in our country is too high. I would like to see the number of deaths per day from COVID to be under 100 per day. We're still at a, at a stage that we should not say, oh, this is over because, you know, the deaths are down. Yeah, they're down, but they're not they're not where they need to be. We're still losing three to 500 people a day as a result of this virus. There's a lot more we can do. But at the end of the day, we need to do it with, with compassion. We need to do it caring for individuals. And we need to remind ourselves that the lives lost are people that are not going to come back. Families have had incredible pain because of losing one or more family members mm -hmm. as a result of this pandemic. And they all need our love. They need our support. And they need our help going forward because, you know, the economic loss they have as a result of that is not something we can we can easily write off. Again, as I said, uh, you know, the the we have calculated that over 176,000 kids have lost one or more parents as a result mm -hmm. of this pandemic in the U.S. That is going to have tremendous consequences for the life of those children. Absolutely. Recently appointed as interim dean for the Emory University School of Medicine. Congratulations. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, as always, you've been with us from the beginning. Three years ago, we were having this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time, as always. Happy to be with you, Rose, and thanks for covering this pandemic so effectively. From earlier today, my conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio regarding that Senate bill that permanently blocks schools, colleges, state and local governments from requiring proof of COVID vaccinations for enrollment or services. And also he talked about how the U.S. initially responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our conversations will continue with Dr. Jody Guest coming up next. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As we just heard from Dr. Carlos Del Rio, we now, we now welcome back another familiar voice on public health, Dr. Jody Guest, professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Welcome back. Spend some time. Thank you so much, Rose. Nice to see you again. You know, the Biden administration has plans to end this state of emergency declared for the pandemic. Your thoughts on that? Right, so the um, it will end, this emergency um, plan will end on May 11th. And uh, you know, that's, it's a mixed bag. That's good news in that we are controlling this pandemic a lot better than we were, but bad news for people who are uninsured in this country um, and are going to lose some of the supports that we've had with this emergency authorization during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm really worried about a portion of our country and how they're gonna receive their care. You know, and having the conversations with Dr. Carlos Del Rio and other folks who are talking about what we should be learning if we haven't and we should have been learning from this pandemic is our approach not only just to something like this virus, but overall policies related to public health. You know, I've asked this question so many times and I get different answers, but what is your hope that, that it comes out of this and how we as a nation address not just the virus, but public health policy? So I have two hopes, um, one big one, um, which is I hope that public health can go back to being what is clearly political um, public health policies, but previously in some of our lifetimes were not bipartisan. Um, I wish we would say that the health of our population, the health of our communities superseded party politics. And we really need to see it go back to that. 
uh, a more specific infrastructure thing um, we saw with MPOX, we still had not learned how to get vaccinations out quickly, even when we had them. And we should have been watching what went wrong with the COVID-19 pandemic from that and been ready when MPOX started. So we need to really be paying attention to the lessons that are right in front of us. So if you were writing a book, it would be party politics, policy and people, how to get rid of that and save lives. Yes. <laughs> Shouldn't we all be trying to do that? <laughs> so then it's no surprise that COVID-19 is still being used as this political ball back and forth. It is a political issue. It should not be. That's not being biased. That's just what it is. You want to save people's lives three years into this pandemic and it's still political. It is it's super, unfortunately. And again, public health is about policies. So it's going to be political in nature. We need money. We need policies to support the science. But we should not be a ball that is volleyed back and forth for political will and gain. So when you hear 56 percent of people in Georgia are vaccinated and about 24 percent have their booster shot. And Dr. Carlos Del Rio talked about he's concerned about that 60 plus age population what are your concerns about that leaving an opening for this this another subvariant or some other virus to to rear up? And especially when you still don't have a significant portion, it's more than half of Georgians who are vaccinated. But the booster shot is what folks are missing. Yeah. So Georgia is actually slightly ahead of national average for booster shots or what we would call up, staying up to date on your vaccinations. The U.S. population is only about 15.7 percent up to date on vaccinations. And that's really missing a place where you can get your own protection. Um, We should be consistently talking about how important those vaccinations are. We know that they help save lives. We know that they help people stay healthier if they contract COVID-19, but we have not done a good job of getting particularly the latest booster out to people. You know, earlier we were talking about right now the congressional hearing where agencies like NIH and and the CDC are are answering questions from lawmakers about, you know, what went right, what went wrong. And again, you know, Dr. Guest, we have two different administrations here. Uh, President Trump's administration, I think it's fair to say, had a very lax approach to dealing with this. You know, but now we're, we're getting questions as to, okay, what do we do now moving forward? Is it fair to hold NIH and CDC responsible for all of the bad things or the challenges that some of these lawmakers, and to be fair, I want to be clear, mostly Republicans, are targeting them with? No, it's not fair. You know, the CDC is, I'm looking right at the building right now, it's filled with some of the most brilliant scientists who are actively every day trying to do super good work to save lives and to make our populations healthier. Um, they've been used as um, a punching bag in a lot of this. And nothing has been done perfectly. Let's be very clear about that. But there's really good science that's been done. And yet um, a bunch of the leaders for scientists have been used for political gain. Okay. And and folks like you have been critical of some of the mistakes that have been made or, or things they could have done differently. Looking back now with where the CD, let's talk about the CDC here because they're right in our backyard. Uh, messaging, I think, was always a fair criticism, you know, to mask, not to mask. You don't have to wear a mask when you go indoors. Don't do this. Don't do that. So there were lessons learned there. Moving forward, where, what are those other lessons that you think have come out of this? Well, I think learning about a novel virus in front of everyone during the time of social media is unique and challenging and so very, very hard. And so every single decision and new piece of communication that's put out there, people are watching in real time if that's accurate or not. And so as scientists were learning just as everyone else was learning about this. But I think one of the biggest messages is science communication is key. And with every single change in science communication needs to be an explanation for the reason for the change. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest missteps Here's a change in communication, change in policy, but the why was always not always well explained, and we need to do better about that. And talking about the why, and, and experts and folks in your field have said when it came to the vaccine, not enough messaging was, was re- relayed to the public about, look, we're not saying you will not get COVID-19. What we're saying is that this could possibly decrease your your likelihood of having, having a severe case of it, 
and leading to death. Now, there are other optics around in terms of other conditions that folks may have. You agree that perhaps that's something that could have been better relayed to the public about the vaccine? Absolutely. And I will say, in hindsight, we shouldn't have led with, wow, it looks like 95% of cases, you know, transmission will be reduced from this, because that was a surprising finding and not even what the studies were set up to originally look at. That's what not what the vaccines were intended to do. We were just overwhelmingly thrilled with that when we the data, you know, were first presented. It's changed with every single variant. So that's not remained consistent. Mm-hmm. But what has remained consistent in which probably was lost in all the conversation is they were designed and they do prevent most deaths and a lot of severe illness. And that is really important. Now there is that measure we've been talking about in the the legislature, in the legislature that would permanently block, as mentioned, you know, requiring vaccinations from schools and and government uh, related uh, services. You're concerned about that. Yeah, why would you handicap public health like that? Putting a mandate to block mandates is is really different than what could be the current conversation, which is we currently don't need requirements because COVID-19 transmission is down, numbers are down. They're not down enough, but they're down a lot compared to what they've been. But if you put a ban on mandates, the ripple effects and the what's going to happen in the future is at risk. And you're taking away one of our big tools. I have a question from a listener that says, what is the likelihood scientifically and socially of, pre- of presenting the COVID vaccine as an annual shot? Um, scientifically versus socially. Those are probably two different answers. <laughs> yeah. um, I would like to, ho- I hope that we get to exactly that, that you could get your flu vaccine and your COVID-19 vaccine at the exact same time. It's a once a year thing. And that we get a lot of the population to do that. We still don't have enough of the population who does that with flu vaccine, but that would be a goal. Socially, unlike the flu vaccine, which has never been very political, although it hasn't had great uptake, COVID-19 has become so politically volatile Mm -hmm. um, that I don't know that we're going to be able to get there, but I hope we can. There's always talk about data, you know, and Mm -hmm. science, and this is your field. Folks want to see data. Sometimes data is needed to, to get policy enacted through your lens, what data don't we have enough of? And perhaps that could be blocking and changing some of these these issues we have as it relates to these policies. What are we not getting, you think, right now from science that we need as it relates to this virus? Well, I think, again, we're, um, we're examining data in the minutia of it out in public, which we've never really done before. It, we've always um, looked at it, examined it, had time to process it and even do studies over and over again. Epidemiology is all about reproducibility of results, but you cannot do that during the middle of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it's just the public fodder of the data and not a clear, consistent voice talking about it has been a problem for us. From some, take it from someone, and I'll use myself, uh, who has to get all these shots, including a shingles shot. I'm at that age right now. Um, you know, people's mindset about, oh, my goodness, I got to get all these shots. You know, how do you can you ease someone's mindset about all these shots? Uh, it, it varies from person to person. You know that. Absolutely. You know, they're meant to keep you safe. Um, And there is incredibly good data about how they keep people safe and the very few side effects that exist. Safety and efficacy, we need to talk about the fact that that is FDA's number one priority when they look at any vaccination. Not how well does it work, but is it safe? And so the safety data is really important. And that's probably one of the pieces we need to talk the most about. These vaccines are safe. They're also incredibly effective. We'll end with the same question that I asked Dr. Carlos Del Rio, but also understand that more than a million lives are lost throughout all of this, and people still are are succumbing to this virus. What is your message to anyone, all the, the stakeholders here, from the policymakers to the people who are listening to the sound of our voices right now? What do you want them to take away? What is that one message you want them to take away from all of this? We should not have lost 1.1 million people in the United States from COVID-19. It was a large number of those 
lives lost, loved ones gone were preventable. We must learn from that. We have to do better and, and honor their lives by being willing to work together to do better. All right. Now, last time we spoke, you had a picture of a cow or something back there. Are you in a different office? I am. I'm in Emory today. Um, now, back at work. I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, look, I'm not an art person. I'm kind of artsy. Is that an abstract back there? What is that? Yeah, it's an abstract. It's a folk art dog. Look at me. <laughs> I'm evolving. It is, but always have to have the animals, Rose. <laughs> yes, I'm evolving. Dr. Jody Guest is a professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Three years into this, we're still having the conversation, huh? We are, Rose. Thank you so much for all you've done to cover the pandemic. So appreciate you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineers are Kevin Rinker and Sawyer Vanderwerth. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, as you all always do, and it's okay. If you missed any of today's program, it is online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.